0: Hello, and welcome to the Heathen's Journey podcast. I'm your host, Siri Vincent Pluff, and I'm so glad you're here. This is the show where I explore heathenry through a queer lens. We will be talking about traditional witchcraft, runes, folklore, and so much more. Join us, won't you, as we journey to the ends of the nine realms and back. Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Heathen's Journey podcast. I am so excited to have this guest on this week. Um, I have been sitting on this interview for quite a while. So as the leaves are turning and we are moving into fall, we're past the autumn equinox now, I always start to think about going back to school. I am that nerd who always loved going back to school season. And I just love the kind of possibilities that are in the air for learning and growing and expanding your horizons. And this interview is the perfect interview um, to get you thinking as a student of occultism. This week, I'm having Eric Perdue on the podcast. Eric recently finished the first translation of the three books of occult philosophy in over 300 years. That's right. Eric has spent the better part of a decade translating the behemoth that is the three books of occult philosophy. So there are several reasons for this. Um, If you are a student of occultism or Western esotericism, then you know that uh, this is a really important tome in magical history and for uh, magicians to this day and the unfortunate fact is that a lot of us all of us have been utilizing translations that were inaccurate and uh, eric and i go in depth into the you know issues that he ran into as a translator i personally find this really fascinating um especially as i am attempting to pick up some scandinavian languages and um you know, working to translate some source material, some sources on my own, Um, it's really intense. And this is deep, incredible work. Um, And so I was so excited when I heard about this uh, happening, that I reached out to Eric immediately. So I found out about this project from Matthew Venus, who was on the podcast back in March. And, um... I did not realize at the time that I reached out to Eric Perdue in March that uh, the book was not coming out until November. So I have been sitting on this podcast episode waiting until it was a more appropriate time to release this interview. And now is the perfect time. So the book is available for pre-order. It comes out on November 16th, I believe, and um, now is the, the great time to reserve your copy. So I actually, in the apothecary, now have a uh, uh, the book on pre-sale. So you can pre-order the book from me. Um, and pre-sales are really important. They help kind of publishers and booksellers uh, understand the demand for books. And they also really help the authors by kind of being included in the author's um, first week of sales, which is really critical for a book release. So, if you are interested in supporting this work, I highly, highly, highly recommend that you pre-order the three books on my website. Now, I will warn you, they are fancy books. So, <laughs> they're a little on the expensive side, but that is because it is a leather-bound box set. And if you are a serious student of occultism, you absolutely want this translation. All right. But in terms of this translation, I will let Eric speak for himself. Welcome to the podcast, Eric. It is so fantastic to have you. Um, so by way of introduction, what is your current work? Um, We're here to talk about the three books of occult philosophy, but I know that you're also a magician and an astrologer working in different capacities. So what is that mix for you?
1: (laughs) Thanks for having me. Um, Well, yeah, my current work is very much still three books of occult philosophy. We're still uh, in in final editing stages, so it's in the forefront of my mind (laughs) and my life right now. Um, Well, so I started out, Accidentally getting involved with um, Afro-Cuban Cantoria uh, slash Luchame, and that was really my first serious introduction. Uh, I mean, I was interested, like anybody else, in buying books, and I bought Starhawk, like everybody else did in the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> and yeah, I bought books, right? You know, I bought some Crowley, and you know, read some histories of the Golden Dawn. I figured that's what I had to do, and then I accidentally was introduced to uh, a Santero. Uh, I didn't know he was a Santero and he didn't tell me he was. And to make a very long story short, I learned very quickly that I wanted to, I, I just basically wanted what he had, whatever that was. And so I've been involved with that since um, 1990. It's been a, l- a little while. And I was initiated as a Santero or priest of Centuria Lukumi. We call it Leukemi. Um in 2000 and I've been very active in that world since ever since. Um, and in 2005, my teachers, they could be called Godparents in me, He passed away and I realized I needed to kind of get back to my basics a little bit. So I uh, that's when I actually revisited Agrippa for the first time because he, he talked to me about him a lot and he introduced me to, to Agrippa and Picatrix. And, um, back in the nineties, but no one was really talking about them, seems like. And, um, that made me, you know, get back into astrology and from reading Picatrix and Agrippa, I realized that the astrology that I had heard about was not the astrology I was reading about. And that put me down another rabbit hole. So, um, that basically, that's my other world is doing, um, pre-modern, uh, you know, primarily medieval, um, European and Arabic astrology and astrological magic. Uh, my magical world na- nowadays is primarily more of the, you know, Lucumi Afro-Cuban variety. Um, but I, I do astrological consultations, uh, and I hope to increase that <laughs> when this all dies down and, um, And then, you know, I do some astrological magic as well, so.
0: Fantastic. So that is a pretty good lead-in to my first question for you, which is, why a new translation of Agrippa? Why now? And what drew you to this project?
1: Well, why now is because I'm doing it. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So so when I I first started reading three books uh, several years ago, I well, once I started studying traditional astrology, I started noticing some issues, and I had a lot of conversations with uh, Christopher Warnock, who is um, you know kind of the you know I guess the the grandfather of modern uh, traditional astrological magic to most of us. He, he got I mean he was really one of the early proponents in our in our time, and. I, I had a lot of conversations with him and he also brought up some issues and you know, primarily that the, the astrological sections in Agrippa don't really make sense uh, in the existing um, English translation and Donald Tyson, who edited it, you know, really didn't catch it either. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but um, so that, that was my first impetus was just to, to see really how far this went. And I, because I'm a very orderly person, I started with chapter one. <laughs> so I, I just, just as a, as a test, I translated, I think the first five chapters uh, just to see how it went. And I, I very quickly noticed that, you know, as early as, I think it was chapter three, I started noticing some problems. Um, some, you know, translation errors that were not astrological, that, that, that were actually mistranslations. And I also quickly realized that Tyson was not sourcing Agrippa's actual primary sources as well. So I, I thought it was important to approach this book on its own terms and exactly what the Latin says. And then at the same time, use sources that Agrippa would have had, had access to as opposed to, you know, modern or 19, 19th century sources, a second or tertiary sources that Agrippa could not have had. Uh, I just want to get more into it with problems, right?
0: (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) So, um, so I think uh, we're going to frame this podcast episode around just like how to even begin studying Agrippa, because um, it is a poorly translated. Um, until this new edition, a poorly translated 16th century text. Um, But it still has huge ramifications um, in occult history, of course, and therefore in occultism today. So um, what has been the importance of the three books in, you know, your practice? And how do you see that sort of ripple effect?
1: Well, I, I think it's, to begin with, in the, I think the importance in the history of the occult um, is huge because it's. It, it, as soon as it was published, it was. It became a source book, and the reason why is because there really aren't that many books on magic that compile so many different sources together into one volume. So just from, from a, a convenience standpoint, it's, um, it's it's important because you don't have to to necessarily buy 200, you know, three books sources about 200 books. So you don't necessarily need to have all 200 of these books, you know, to get all the juicy parts out. And Agrippa really did take the best material out of some of these books, I think. Um, So that's important. And it became a source book uh, pretty much immediately. Anytime uh, anybody talked about planetary sigils, um, the esoteric use of Stones, plants, animals, uh, that kind of thing. Um, Agrippa's incense recipes, um, and just the, you know that kind of like worldview. It, it, it became uh, one of the sources of the Golden Dawn when they were formulating their system, uh, and that of course had a huge ripple effect in just 20th century magic in general because the Golden Dawn is so primary to 20th century magic. All roads seem to lead to Agrippa uh, at some point. Seems like for me personally. Um, That's what really made me understand that there was an important philosophical and practical break between modern and traditional magic and astrology. And it really kind of drove that home to me because I think a lot of us uh, instinctively know this, uh, but it isn't necessarily, I don't think really... um, it isn't really driven home to us very much, and it isn't as laid out as, as coherently as Agrippa does it. So, re- doing that deep read of Agrippa taught me uh, how to see the universe in a different way, um, which is a problem today because we're all raised in a in a modern scientific materialist uh, worldview, and most of the magic that we do you know, it, it, assuming it's, it's at least based in, in a pre-modern mindset is, comes from that same world. It comes from a world that, that believed in spirits as actual beings and not parts of the mind. Um, it can't, it's, it's a world where astrology was expected to actually tell the future of events uh, and also to diagnose medical problems. Um, you're, you're, you're expected to be able to provide as an astrologer, very concrete answers and you know this is the world this all comes from. And today we've kind of that's all become kind of diluted. And um, and, I, and I think a lot of magicians are accustomed to accepting very small results as very big results.
0: <laughs> right.
1: And uh, so Agrippa, I think I think this close read really helped. Uh, I think formulate that in my mind.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I think um, I think Agrippa can help us get to a lot of, um, you know, once you study Agrippa, you can kind of see that impact in a lot of other areas. And then it's, okay, bear with me. I know that I didn't (laughs) send this to you as a question before. Um, I'm going off script. Um, (laughs) So uh, I am just very curious about, the mistranslations um that you talked about in the material that you sent me um before this interview and then how that impacts um you know the uh secret societies like the golden dawn um golden dawn impacts curly curly impacts wicca um and so you kind of like get further and further from this source material but it was it's all cited like You know, like people are constantly citing Agrippa as a cult uh, reference. So that's a very messy question. Um, (laughs) But maybe can you speak on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I'll give you a messy answer. Great. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So I I think it was actually, there's two streams of thought with this. Um, I'm not sure necessarily how much well, some of the mistranslations have caused a couple of issues, but or potential issues. But I think for the most part, a lot of the tra- mistranslations have been ignored. Um, because some of the material, some of the, some of the uh, names of things are, are incorrect. Some of the, and I can go into that. This is in more detail uh, in a second. But some of these names are incorrect. Some of the sigils are. Oriented incorrectly, um, but I think that the the golden dawn being, you know, I, I think that the the golden dawn being golden dawn being like an entity as it's as, as it is, and being as influential as as it, as it is with Crowley and so on and so forth. I think that's a different question uh, to me because that. I guess I'll go on that on that rant first. That really speaks more of a break with the way people thought was possible with magic and astrology be, to begin with. And, um, and I, am not sure how far you want me to go into this, but basically, um, the history, the history of astrology and magic sort of have parallel histories in many ways. And, you know, they were, they were, you know, in the old days, they were, intertwined. And with the development of the Enlightenment in Europe, um, the importance of magic and astrology were, of course, degraded a lot. And in, this, in the 18th century, the 1700s, the, the, ma- the practice of magic and astrology, at least, you know, textually speaking, um, wasn't quite as prevalent. Um, It existed a little bit, and there were a few things here and there, but it wasn't as prevalent as it was before. And by the mid-1800s, you started having some developments such as the development of new thought, uh, which is essentially the precursor to the secret, Um, the development of theosophy and things like that. And so that that spurred a, a new growth in magic and astrology. So the Golden Dawn really comes from this world of like new thought and... Theosophy, in this kind of and uh, having a more transcendental view of magic, as opposed to the older view of magic, which is more of like medicine. And I and I, I, that, that's a, that's a whole subject I could rant on about forever. Um, but with the mistranslations, um, you know, there are things like in you know one chapter, JF translates uh, Ruby as a jet stone. And the jet stone seems to be something JF really liked. Uh, JF, by the way, is the, is the person who translated the 17th century translation of three books that basically everyone has now. Tyson's edition is the JF version, but edited. Um, in chapter 33, in book one, the letters of the planets are flipped around. Um, in fact, every many edition's flip these around differently. And I actually had to make a decision on that. Um, the sigils for the planets for Mercury and the moon are flipped around or oriented differently than they should be. Now, these are tied to magic squares. So if you're trying to um, recreate the sigils from magic squares, it will not work with JF's version because the sigils are flipped around. Um <laughs> that should drive every chaos magician nuts. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a lot of astrological terminology that's incorrectly translated. And I, I think that to a certain extent, I, you know, Tyson can be forgiven on some of this because the modern study of traditional astrology really hadn't gotten too far when his edition came out. So Tyson just did not have a lot of material available to them. Um, so, example, um, JF translates the, um, so there's, there's something called the Deccans, which I think are kind of popular now. <clears throat> um, the Deccans are 10 degree divisions of the Zodiac, so there's 36 Deccans. And um, in astrological magic, each Deccan has a, a, a spirit associated with them. Um, and it's also... One of the measures of planetary strength in traditional astrology, but JF translated Deccan as faces and heads. Oh, which makes no sense, right? (laughs) I was said, Oh, sorry, go ahead.
0: Oh, I was gonna say there was another one, um, that was uh, instead of uh, profaction, um, it's perfection,
1: yeah. So The way JF translated it is um, this is from chapter 59 of book one. He says, you know, the most effective dreams are when the moon runs through the ninth sign of the nativity or the revolution of that year Um, or the ninth sign of the sign of perfection. That's what it's supposed to be. And JF translated perfection as perfection so traditional astrology, profections are a predictive tool. Uh, a profection is where each sign represents a year. Uh, the first, so on the ascendant, the rising sign, that's going to be your birth year. So you're born, whatever your rising sign is, let's say it's Aries. Um, so Aries is going to be your, for the year you were born. On your first birthday, you move down to the second sign, which is Taurus, which would be the second House in your chart. And you keep circling around each iterations of 12. So you have 12 year cycles. Um, so he translated this as perfection. So Tyson made a note saying that um, he basically tried to understand what perfection meant. So he thought that perfection meant a full moon. So you had to wait for a full moon. Um, and, that, yeah, and also from the same sentence, he, because the sentence says, when the moon runs through the ninth sign of the nativity. Um, now any traditional astrologer would understand that as either the ninth house or the ninth sign from the ascendant because the ninth house represents um, religion, spirituality, things like that. Uh, also academics, but that's beside <laughs> the point in travel. But, uh, but dreams would be ruled by the ninth house. So that's why he would have said that. Um, Tyson didn't understand that. And he said that it meant the night sign from your sun sign.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Which is problematic. It's a huge difference. and Also, traditional astrologers didn't do sun signs to begin. with, Right. (laughs) Right. So, yeah. Uh, But the the thing with decans is interesting because he said faces and heads. And the so, uh, you know, one of the alternate names for decan is a face. And you'll see that a lot in traditional literature. So, JF obviously looked at this and saw faces, which is correct. And then, you know, Deccan, and the Latin for Deccan is decani or Deccani. And um, I don't know where he got heads from, so I think he just kind of guessed. Um, another astrological one was, there's an astrological concept called a term or bound. Which is a uh, they call it an essential dignity. It's it's another way, just like deacons of determining strength. And um, and there's five terms per sign. There's uh, the the five non luminaries rule de- uh, rule term. And um, JF translated that as mark. And uh, yeah, <laughs> and Tyson made a footnote saying that it means the degree of a sign. I mean, the degree of the Zodiac, sorry. So there'd be three, according to him, there would be 360 marks, I guess. But yeah, it's a totally different idea.
0: Wow, yeah. So clearly, this is a very necessary translation. Um, I think so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just to kind of correct a lot of this stuff, what are the ramifications for, um, you know, ceremonial magicians, Um I'm thinking ceremonial magicians in particular because most of the people that I know that really run with Agrippa tend to be ceremonial magicians. Mm-hmm. Um, but what are the ramifications for modern um, occultists who have been working with either the Tyson translation or previous translations of Agrippa?
1: Well, I, I think, first of all, some of the materials are wrong. Yeah. So I've already run into that with astrological magic. Um because, you know, for instance, it says, um, I wish I could remember where it is now, but it's, I think it's in the chapter of, yeah, it's, it's a chapter on fixed stars, where he talks about the, the stones that are attributed to each of the fixed stars. And um, I think it's the one for Regulus, if I'm not mistaken, is usually, in fact, almost everyone translates it as um, granite. So we have a lot of astrological magicians making um, as rings for regulus with granite. Um, but the actual stone is garnet. That, that's a big difference. I mean, you know, granite maybe, but it's kind of funny, the Latin the Latin is, is as close as the English is to the two words. It's one letter different. Um, so it's that. I mean, I, th- I think the materials are, are a big one. And I think that knowing that the sigils are Oriented incorrectly is important. I it, you know, I, I don't think it really invalidates the magic with the sigils, but it if you're trying to recreate it, it definitely is important. Um, for sure. Um, but I think I, I think that for some ceremonial magician, um the materials are gonna be the most obvious thing, making sure you have the right stones, plants, and that kind of thing. Um unfortunately, some of these just can't be translated though. Um, which makes me think that Agrippa didn't really know some of them himself. I think he was just you know copying in some cases. Um, but also the Agrippa lays out the magical worldview from bottom to top and top to bottom, as above so below. Um, very systematically. And I think that that's probably the most important feature of this because most books on magic that are written at any time but especially today are tend to be very technique heavy so people are essentially copying these recipes over and over and over again without really knowing why they're doing it
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and I think that's absolutely vital to this I mean, yeah, they know why to the sense that they're doing it for a spirit or for a particular result. I mean, that's obvious. But, you know, where is this in, you know, I guess in relation to the universe and why should this even work for you to begin with?
0: Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think that that's a really important aspect of it um, that... You know, when I'm teaching um, my own students in witchcraft and magic, um, I like to say, all right, start with the why and then build. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, start with why you even want to do the spell and then go from there, Um, which feels just very rational to me, which is probably, (laughs) you know, uh, I don't know, indicative of something. Um, But It should be rational. So. It should, yeah, like it, it should, you should also be doing magic for a purpose, I feel, right? Yes. You know, like not just to do it because I've definitely seen people just do magic constantly and you can lose yourself.
1: Well, no, but that, that to me that kind of, again, goes back to what I was saying earlier is that, you know, we, we kind of have this preoccupation with seeing magic as this transcendental act. And so... You know, if you look at our beloved, um, you know, social media posts and forums, which we all love. um, You know, there's a lot of talk about, okay, well, I did this, okay, I did this ritual and it worked for me. Or they'll say things like, oh, I got a feeling. Okay, the flame was flickering in a certain way, so I know that that spirit was there. And that might be. <laughs> and those things might have been might have worked for you, but the thing I can't shake is that this is something that I think is kind of of um, I, I think it's become highlighted to me because of my Afro-Cuban experience is that um, there's a there's a diminished um, there's there's a diminished expectations actually yeah diminished expectations right now so. The magicians are expecting less from the magic, so when those little things happen, it be, the the, the then, then the belief is that okay, something huge happened. And, right. Um, whereas what, what I've seen with with again, this, I'm speaking of this in Afro Cuban sense that I've seen extremely big things happen, even though nothing appeared to be happening during the actual sermon. And. Mm. And, I, and I'm saying things like, you do this ceremony because you need to have X, Y, and Z happen, and those exact three things have to happen. And if those things don't happen, then the magic just didn't work, to, regardless of flickering flames and shivers that you got or whatever. Um, it either worked or it didn't work. And at the end of the day, that's how we have to be approaching this magic. You know, the the We're not really here to you know, have our heads in the clouds <laughs> and, and just to, to mindlessly you know devote ourselves to these spirits, at the end of the day, the spirits should be working for us. And we should be expecting something from that.
0: I was talking to Johannes the other day um about just this very topic of like, you know, knowing results and tracking results and uh doing magic for specific purposes. And um yeah it just it was really resonant basically you know he was like yes i am a professional magician and i do magic and get results for people that is that is important and it's how you operate
1: (laughs) it is It, it sounds really basic but it i i see this so many people stumbling on this because in our in our modern age, it is a little, definitely a little bit of a stumbling block to, to see spirits as actual beings. And uh, there's, you know, I think that for many of us, and I'm not excluding myself, <laughs> that we we tend to see, you know, spirits and magic as purely a um, a psychological um, process and. Even if you believe that spirits are objective beings, I think us living in the world that we do, there's always a, a part of your brain that kind of questions it a little bit. Um, and anybody who says they, they, they don't do that anymore, I think we're lying, because I think it's just part of the, of the background of life that we have right now. Um, but, I mean, no one's absolute with that, with that thinking. Um, but, you know, it, it's taking me years and years and years of you know having the magic speak to me in very objective ways to actually get through my my tough skin and it's you know that's you know when when you're talking about Agrippa they they didn't have necessarily have that issue I mean you always had skeptics
0: naturally of course
1: I mean Cicero was one of them (laughs) but but the thing is is that the overarching worldview at the time was, you know, the church. You know, the church may not have liked astrology, but they believed it was real. They may not have liked demons, but they believed it was real. <laughs> um, they they weren't they weren't saying, okay, you know, all of you need to go to a you know therapy to get the demons out of your head, you know, because you're imagining things. Um, they, they believe these are objectively real, and that's that's not necessarily just a byproduct of living in the ancient world you know, if you, you know, living, there are magical societies, that, you know, Afro-Cubans are an example of these are, you know, it's, it's part of, it's in the water, you know? Um, and I think, you know, probably your experience with trolldom, it's, it's just a little bit of that's kind of in the water there, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's in the blood. And, but in America, we've kind of, we've, we've lost our traditions by and large, at least, at least white people have. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and so you know we, we have to sort of reclaim uh or relearn not reclaim because it starts to sound creepy after a bit but right. i don't mean it re-learning. <laughs> <Re-learn it. laughs> i don't want to sound creepy um yeah we, we have to kind of <laughs> we have to retrain our brains to to you know to to we have to we have to relearn our traditions yes exactly and um and that takes many many forms i mean I, i'm i'm not I'm hearing doing Afro-Cuban, I'm a priest in Afro-Cuban religion and I'm, I'm as white as they can be, but, um, and it wasn't my plan to do it, but, um, but I mean, it's, it's there. And there are a lot of places, there are a lot of cultures in the world today that have that magical thinking sort of, you know, like I'm saying in the water, it's just there, even, even if they're not necessarily working in a particular tradition, per se. Um, it's just there. I was talking to my godmother about that recently. Yeah. She, you know, she's Cuban. And she said that, you know, Cuba, that even, you know, not everybody is, you know, is a practitioner of leukemia. Um, pretty much everybody calls themselves Catholic, but, you know, they're, they're not all into leukemia. There's a whole, there's a lot of traditions in Cuba that, that you know, some of them aren't as popular in America, um, but there are a lot of tra- tra- traditions there. And, You know, it could be, you know, you could be leukemia, you could be, um, you could be just, you know, working in in spiritism, you could be, um, you know, part of the Albuquerque, or you could be Paulo Manombe, all these other things, or you could just be a Catholic. And even if you're just a Catholic, and you you don't identify with any sort of African or esoteric um, tradition, um, when the shit hits the fan, that's where they go. And also like, you know, she was telling me that, you know, if your, if your baby has colic and they're crying all the time, there's just something, there, there's things they do for them. That, that, you know, that's not really considered to be just magical, but it is. Um, it's just, they just do it. And we, we don't really have that in America as much today.
0: Yeah. I I'm hoping later um, this summer um, to have a conversation with uh Corey of New World Witchery. Um, And he just published a a treasure trove of North American folk magic, Um, which I'm really excited to dig into. I have not yet. Um, But that's part of it is kind of seeing the roots that are still there, still operating and then tracing them back. And Mm -hmm. I've definitely found with Troll Dome, like within that tradition, you know, one of the very first things that we did was learn how to see spirits and, you know, like learn how to recognize when a spirit is present and when they aren't, um,
1: Mm -hmm. you don't learn that from a book.
0: No, you don't. You it's experiential. You have to learn it, you know, with someone else. Um, there are definitely experiments that you can do in like ways that maybe a solitary person who is very attuned could attempt, you know, to learn it, but it's a lot more efficient, I should say, to, I agree. um, to get help from a teacher in that kind of aspect. Um, but then also like it's laying foot on, you know, the soil of your ancestors as well. Um, and feeling that, being like, "Oh, this is this is where the magic that you know, like, is within my own lineage has come from." Um, I had that experience when I I spent a summer in Norway, and I had I definitely had that experience there. Um, we have strayed very far from your work. Uh, <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> yes, but it's absolutely. I think it's. I think it's an important point, though, because I want this podcast episode to be about like how do we approach this like very old text and you know use it and work with it to um kind of like contextualize it for our modern selves right you know like we have a very different mindset than Agrippa did um Mm -hmm. or anyone reading Agrippa did we have a very different mindset than um JF did right (laughs) so I didn't even know what JF's mindset
1: was (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. Nobody knows. JF is anonymous. Um, so um, so it's important to kind of like trace, trace it back in this way. Um, so one of the things that's really struck me from um, reading the introductory materials that you sent me was talking about how The three books are very difficult to use as reference materials because they are constantly referencing information from within themselves Mm -hmm. um, and constantly circling back upon information. And that's almost always how the three books are presented, is this is a reference book. Please don't read it cover to cover. Um, So how does a student even approach it in that instance?
1: Well, it is is difficult, I'm not going to lie. And, you know, my hope is that my translation will be easier to read. Um, that is not to say that it's easy. I don't, I don't think it's an easy book, you know, regardless. I don't, I don't think it was an easy book in Latin uh, to Latin readers. But I think that in absence of a commentary of some kind, um, the best way is at the beginning, because the book is methodically laid out. Um, It's very well organized. And so when, in the last chapter, when Agrippa says, you know, that he mixed up the material, um, it it isn't, you know, a lot of people want to, you know, Da Vinci code it, and think that there's some like crazy hidden message if you decode it, you know. Um, But really it's, it's just efficiency. And the example that I've given before is, you know, it's like reading a French cookbook um there's gonna be a chapter somewhere that talks about the the various you know mother sauces in french cooking and and then maybe halfway through the book there'll be a recipe that says okay you have to make you know th- this chicken requires a bechamel and they're not gonna have the recipe for the bechamel and um now of course they're going to probably reference it but agrippa did not do that so agrippa is, is constantly re- um referring to material that he Talks about earlier in the book. So the only way to really know this is to read it. Um, my hope is that my, my version is easier to understand, but the book starts out with the most basic ideas possible. He starts out with the magic, which most books today don't even, <laughs> how many books on magic are written today don't have a definition of magic. Um, So there's that. And then he goes into elements and then he kind of starts expanding from there. And, you know, heck, there aren't many books that talk about elements today that even talk that actually define what the elements are, you know, and Agrippa does that. Um, So I think for now, until someone, perhaps, you know, perhaps myself writes a commentary on it, the best approach is is to read it very carefully and from the beginning. And, It'll take a long time. Um,
0: (laughs) It it is a a bit of a behemoth. Yeah, I'm not going to
1: lie. It's yeah, it's the first time I read it, I did read it cover to cover. And I think it took me a few months and Mm -hmm. I don't think I understood everything. Um, I mean, at this point, I think I've read it close to a dozen times. (laughs) So. (laughs) um, But yeah, I I really wish there was some other material there out out there that's discussed the the magic of the astrology of its of that time in a in a concise manner not just a translation um i, I can't think of anything like that for now and i i, I really wish there was something i, c- I could say for that
0: um, yeah um i had asked what you know supplementary you know, materials you could use as a student to approach this text with. And um, I think that, you know, before we hit record, you had said there is not much other than, you know, the other sources that Agrippa was citing, but it'll be harder to read, actually.
1: Well, there is there is. And I just saw one one book that is easy, easy to get and very cheap um, under ten dollars, probably. But it's um it's called The Elizabethan Worldview. Uh, oh, By Tillier. Do you know that one?
0: I've heard of it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It was written uh, by a professor of Shakespearean studies. uh, And he originally wrote it for his students to help them get into the mind, into Shakespeare's mindset, which essentially isn't really much different than Agrippa or anybody else. Um, That's a pretty good book. It's pretty it's it's short as well. But that, that that really gets you into headspace more than anything else. Mm -hmm. Um, it doesn't really, I don't, I don't think it really lays out, I mean, it's not going to lay out Agrippa's ideas of what, of, of magic are, or traditional astrology or anything like that. Um, you know, and, and, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting with Agrippa's book is that, you know, the entire book is made up of quotes, um, almost the entire book
0: Hmm.
1: and, um, You know, entire chapters are just made up of quotes from other books strung together. Um, And but the interesting thing is that Agrippa was using these quotes for a couple of reasons. Um, First of all, to show that to show his scholarship. That's the way people did it back then. Um, But the other reason is that he was formulating his own argument on on magic. Mm-hmm. And he was doing this by quoting other people, but mm-hmm. he, you know, William Burroughs style was, you know, kind of like cutting and pasting, pasting these together to a new idea, to his own personal idea, which is a fascinating concept to me. Um, so, you know, part of this was that he was, you know, he was answering some problems that, you know, as much as he, followed Ficino and Trithemius and people like that, you know, there are certain holes in, in their arguments, like in what, what the role of spirits are and that kind of thing. So Agrippa was, was trying to answer those problems, or trying to solve those problems by quoting Ficino and Trithemius and church fathers and other people. Um, and I, again, I don't think anybody has really done that, which is why I can't think of any, any other primary sources, because even if you go, or any um introductory sources because you know in a sense agrippa is an intro introductory source
0: just for right. to read <laughs> yeah yeah a, a difficult for the modern um the modern eye uh text to read um it seems to me like a lot of it would be helpful for there to be like a series of books on magical history but that actually talk about like the techniques um of magic that come out of those different periods in time. Um,
1: that would be interesting.
0: Kind of like a, like a historical reference. Like I know that this is, you know, like the author recognizing that this is not how we do magic now, but that um, there are some techniques that you can still use. Um, it's almost like I what
1: Thorndike did with the, hit, with the history magic, except from the standpoint of a practitioner.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, what has surprised you the most about this work?
1: Well, I think a couple things that spring to mind is one, I didn't, I didn't realize how much of the book was made up of quotes. (laughs) I think it's a surprise to most people. Um, and and I had those all footnoted, but it's it's um, a lot of ideas that we attribute it to, to Agrippa really aren't his. Um, you know, it just, I mean, I guess the way he put this together is his idea, but it's, he's using other people's words, which is, I don't know to me, to me again, it's a fascinating idea. Um, I can't imagine writing a book that way today. Um, can you imagine trying that with your library?
0: <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Things would get strange quickly.
1: Things would get strange and you get sued quickly too.
0: Yes, um, absolutely.
1: The other surprise to me was that was how few books on magic Agrippa really quoted. Mm-hmm. Um there were, he basically didn't quote any grimoires in the book. Um you know it, unless you count picatrix as a grimoire. Um, but even that is quoted in a, I don't know, kind of a strange way because it's not really just a straight quote. He was, again, copying and pasting different things together. Picatrix is part of it. Um, but he, he was essentially... Um, I think he wanted it, wanted to keep things kind of conservative because he's already in dangerous territory with the subject matter. Um, so, for to a large extent, he's quoting established writers on on well, church fathers. He quotes the Bible. He quotes uh, a lot of commentary on the European style of Kabbalah and things like that. So he, he kept things very conservative in a lot of ways. Um, so it wasn't like he was. Sourcing, I, I expected to learn of some new grimoires or, um, or just magical material in general um, from translating it, and then I realized that you know it really wasn't that spooky, um, which I might turn some people off. I mean, I, th- I think some people might be expecting to, you know, find a another you know Keys of Solomon or something out of it. You're not you're not going to find that. Uh, but you will learn how to approach the keys of Solomon <laughs> from reading this. Um, but yeah, that, that was a surprise to me.
0: Fantastic. Um, yeah. All right, so I'm formulating a question. This is a messy question again. Um, okay. Perhaps does not have a, an answer. Um, I know that a lot of uh, folk magicians um, you know, had access to resources like the, you know, books, three books, um, and two grimoires as well. Um, So how, what would you say is the influence of the three books on kind of folk magicians operating in Europe, both contemporary, contemporary to Agrippa and then moving forward?
1: My suspicion is that a lot of folk magicians also used it as a reference book yeah and I don't think that they were necessarily trying to find um, trying to discover a new way to think. I think that they were mining it for material. So okay. uh, I mean like his, his, his chapters on the <clears throat> planetary uh, correspondences of herbs and stones and whatnot um, is huge. I mean that that's a huge influence. Um, not as unique as it seems like it would be, but it's a huge influence. Um, so I, I think that was a primary use. And of course, just the you know, the, um, I don't think that Tyson was trying to fool anybody, but it was, it was used to make the book palatable. I think, I think you know, mm. by the publisher, but, um, but the graphics that are in the original are mostly, mostly things like sigils and, um, that just by itself is a huge influence. Cause I, I can't think of any books that are earlier, you know, besides some of the grimoire stuff, but there aren't that many books that really go deep into the sigils and formulating them out of magic magic squares Mm -hmm. um, that I can think of in Agrippa. I mean, they existed because Agrippa also sourced things, but just in the popular sense. Um, That in and of itself has been a huge influence. And also, I mean, you know, in folk magic, I know in Latin America, um, a lot of these books were... Agrippa is one of them, but remind and translated into Spanish and put into different volumes and sold, you know, um, and that, that, that's been sort of like a little bit of an underground thing
0: though. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is there anything else that you would like to share with, uh, listeners, um, before we wrap up?
1: Well, I think, I, my hope is that you know. Right now, we have, you know, over the last few years, we've had some really good translations um, in both magic and astrology. Um, you know, Stephen Skinner has a ton of them now. <laughs> yes. Um, and you know, it's and Skinner has done a really good job of contextualizing these and and writing his own commentary. Um, but you know, Agrippa has been a major one that really hasn't been tackled um in quite the same way and so grip has got a lot of lip service by a lot of magicians as being influential and you know certainly the book exists on a lot of bookshelves um so my my hope is that this will this can be looked at with fresh eyes mm-hmm. and um and and people could kind of understand its place in the you know in the history of the rest of, of, of grimoire. I mean, really, three books is not a grimoire, but to, to, you know, to sort of see its place in that history as well. Um, because I think it's unclear to a lot of people where he stands. Yeah. You know.
0: Yeah, and also just I think that there is, you know, from my perspective as a, um, a teacher of witchcraft and magic, I think that there is a lot to be learned from studying Agrippa and also... Um, I think that I'm hopeful that your translation will make it a little bit easier, a little bit more palatable um, for modern <laughs> kind of audiences to learn from.
1: That's, that was my goal.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm very excited to read it. When is it coming out?
1: It is coming out November, I believe, 16th, if I remember correctly. It's on, it's on the Internet. Um, <laughs> it's coming out November. And uh, by Inner Traditions.
0: Fantastic. And
1: and you can uh, pre-order from their website and also Amazon. And one thing I do want to point out, there's been some confusion with the different editions I have out there. Um, So the the publication history has been a little bit complicated. Oh, Um, okay. So the Inner Traditions one is the official one. There's, um, uh, I did a book one a few years ago. Which, oh, only exists okay. on e- which you could get from eBay and it's overpriced. Um, and then there was uh, another one that was going to come out that didn't, but there are pre-orders available for that. So you have to okay. be kind of careful, but it's, it's the inter-traditions version.
0: Right, and yours will have all three.
1: It'll be all three. It's a box set.
0: Ooh, I wonderful. Knew. So exciting. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us um, for the thank podcast you. today. I um, am so excited to read this, this new, uh, this new tome, <laughs> this box set it's, of three it tome. new tomes. With a capital um, T. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Wasn't that fantastic? Um, if you ha- have your curiosity piqued and are interested in getting your hands on a copy of the Three Books of Occult Philosophy as translated by today's guest, Eric Perdue, you can head on over to my website and pre-order. Um, I will also include a link in the show notes. <laughs> And that is it for today's episode of the Heathen's Journey podcast. A huge thank you and shout out to all of my students and patrons for making this work available. If you want to become a patron and support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash northernlightswitch. I post full moon and new moon ritual guides, rune readings for each of the turning of the zodiac season, and so much more. If you would like to follow me in between episodes, you can find me on Instagram at northern.lights.witch or on Twitter at North Light Witch. Until next time, stay weird.